Sundays in late October are some of the best days of the year in Los Angeles, especially if you're in your early 20s and don't have many responsibilities, as I was in autumn 1973. Temperatures have moderated. The air is still and warm. On Sunday mornings, 36 hours after the last rush hour of the week, there is very little smog. The sky returns to its natural cobalt blue. Life is as easy as it gets in L.A. Sunday, October 21st, 1973, however, was different. It was the morning after the night before in Washington. President Richard Nixon had decapitated the Justice Department. The FBI had sealed the offices of the Watergate Special Prosecutor. The word on the morning news programs was one of panic and deep concern. Because they are three time zones behind Washington and New York, Angelinos absorbed news in a different state of mind than the people who live where the news is made. Most would have still been asleep when the mid-morning Sunday current affairs programs, the agenda setters in America, first went on the air. My Sunday morning lull in bed was interrupted by the phone. My soon-to-be ex-girlfriend's mother calling from Chicago. Gail filled me in on the details of what had happened in Washington. This was a constitutional crisis. Michael, I don't know what is going to happen in this country, she said. There was a note of genuine fear in her voice, which, over the decades, whenever I've thought about these times, I can still hear. This event, on top of reporting from the ongoing war in the Middle East, crammed too much information into a sleepy Sunday. Yet this was a day when the first reports of something even more epoch-shattering appeared in the U.S. News editors must have struggled with the overload, as a look at the front page of the New York Times from that Sunday shows. Three lines of 48-point boldface headline run across the entire front page. Nixon discharges Cox for defiance. Abolishes Watergate task force. Richardson and Ruckel's house out. Second lead, slightly smaller type, directly under it. Kissinger meets Brezhnev on Mideast ceasefire plan. Articles on those two subjects cover the rest of the front page, except for a small box in the bottom right-hand corner. Headline, Saudi oil is cut off. Saudi Arabia had decided to stop all oil exports to the United States in view of the increase in American support for Israel. Algeria announced similar action. By the end of the week, the flow of oil had been cut by 4 million barrels a day, a reduction of 10% globally. Of all the historical turning points that would take place that autumn, the Arab oil embargo is the one that had the deepest impact. Yet, when it was announced, the initial response was calm. Policymakers seemed to retreat into the safe language of expectations. The coordinated attacks of the Egyptian and Syrian armies on Israel had taken them by surprise, but as soon as they recovered their collective breath, the prospect of oil being used as an economic weapon by Arab producers was top of their lists of possible knock-on effects of the war. It had been used during the 1967 war and during the Suez Crisis, but had not been particularly successful. This may explain the sanguine conclusions of a CIA report dated October 14th, one week after the October war began. In the U.S., the report said, the impact would not be felt immediately, but Europe and Japan would be seriously affected within three months. No need to panic is the tone. That 
prior history must have informed the reporting at the beginning of the process. Signs of Arab moderation in use of oil weapon was the headline on the first report in the Times on October 17th. The story was a three-paragraph item noting that Gulf oil states were raising the price of crude to $3.65 a barrel, or £1.46, not really that big a price rise. But over the next week, the pressure was ratcheted up, step by step. By October 26th, the daily flow of Arab oil was cut by 4 million barrels. Europe, with 80% of its supplies coming from the Middle East, immediately began to suffer. That big a cut, overnight, even had an impact on the U.S., which relied on the Middle East for only 10% of its oil. Those sanguine estimates of America's ability to withstand a cutoff of supply were clearly wrong. A little over two weeks after the oil embargo got underway, stories appeared saying stocks were running low quickly. It was panic stations on both sides of the Atlantic. A 55-mile-per-hour speed limit was introduced in the U.S. Sunday pleasure driving was banned in the Netherlands. The Daily Mail, then as now, looking for the lead lining in any cloud, ran a feature on why Britons might only be allowed to drive 50 miles a week by Christmas. The panic buying at American gas stations began. Panic public relations gestures were made. Officials in the New York area stopped using their limousines. A quarter-century-long economic era of unprecedented prosperity came undone in a matter of weeks. In the month after the embargo began, consumer prices shot up 0.8%, the highest jump since the start of the Korean War, and they would be going higher. American regulators gave airlines permission to bump their airfares up by 5% because of the increase in the cost of fuel. And if things were bad in America, they were worse in Britain. Inflation had already been a factor in both economies for several years. Now it was accelerating at stupefying speed. At the start of the year in the U.S., the inflation rate was 3.65%. By December, it was 8.7%. Britain ended the year with a 9.1% inflation rate. By the end of 1974, the respective numbers would be 10.98 and a little over 16%. And in 1975, while inflation began to moderate in the U.S., in Britain, inflation would reach an astonishing 24.24%. One reason things were so much worse in Britain was, with all its nationalized industries, the government was big business, and with the deep, deep antagonism between unions and any conservative government, this economic shock went to the core of the way society was organized. It's not just generals who fight the last war, so do politicians. The men, and they were all men, who were running both governments' response to the crisis had fought in World War II. Some had helped organize the post-war architecture for dealing with economic crises like this. Despite being free marketeers, they believed that state solutions imposed from central government were the way to handle extreme economic crises. Wage and price controls, rationing, this is the way things had worked for a quarter of a century at least. And now these solutions turned out to be wholly inadequate. When the oil embargo hit, Prime Minister Edward Heath was in the process of rolling out phase three of his prices and incomes policy. The speed with which inflation accelerated overtook his plans, but he tried to press ahead anyway. And then, three weeks after the embargo began, the National Union of Mine Workers turned up. 
they had already tabled demands for wage increases of 22 to 47 percent during the summer. Now they had leverage. Heath offered a 13 percent pay increase. The union leaders turned it down. The NUM stopped short of striking to get what it wanted. It imposed an overtime ban. British life quickly veered to the surreal as energy supplies dwindled. Wartime austerity measures and peacetime. Motor fuel ration books were issued. Not a shot had been fired. Then, in December, the NUM announced it would strike. In response, the Heath government imposed a three-day week on the country. When I point to the autumn of 1973 as a turning point of history and my life, I don't mean there was an instantaneous change of direction, like a train being shunted onto a new track. It was unique, subtle, yet definitive. Jeffrey Smith in The Times wrote, Suddenly, some of the most important assumptions that have gone unchallenged for the past quarter of a century and more no longer look so secure. In his words, social cohesion, the social compact in which no side would act in a way that would destroy the economy, no longer existed. But the foundations of the economy no longer existed. In 1972, Western Europe paid a collective $11 billion for imported fuel. As the autumn of 1973 drew to a close, the estimate was that in 1974, the European nations would have to pay $50 billion. There is no way to distribute a price increase of that size rationally. There was no way for wages to keep up with the inflationary pressures of that increase. They didn't. But it's wrong to understand the impact of the oil shock in spreadsheet terms. We live in times where we're not supposed to quarrel with data, but social change cannot be simply understood by numbers. On the same day that Jeffrey Smith published his analysis, Anthony Lewis in the New York Times wrote of living on two distinct levels of consciousness. We go about our daily business. We talk about politics, about possessions, about travel and food and football, and all the while it becomes harder to avoid awareness that the ground upon which our society rests is shifting. The shifting ground, a progressive era, with government as the honest broker and referee between business and labor, was coming to an end. A conservative epoch, with unregulated markets as the ultimate arbiter of all things, was beginning. One of the byproducts of this new age was a revisionist view of the events of autumn 1973. No, it wasn't the Arab oil embargo that caused the problem, says a paper from Washington's conservative Cato Institute. The embargo was just gesture politics. Really, it was existing price controls that caused the problem by distorting the natural efficiency of the market to allocate and determine prices even in times of crisis. Historians with this view have some facts to command. Inflation had already begun to afflict the Western economies. The Bretton Woods arrangement, a critical piece of that post-war economic architecture, had fallen apart in 1971. The U.S. left the gold standard, leading to dollar depreciation. Oil denominated in dollars was becoming more expensive for importers, like the U.K., and so on. But these problems were being managed. Then came October 1973. A home with a leaky roof that wants mending can survive many years with minimal repairs, and you can live securely in the house underneath. But if a once-in-a-quarter-century hurricane blows through, that roof is gone and the house is ruined. 
the oil embargo was a Category 5 hurricane. Anyway, the fallout cannot be measured merely in economic terms. As 1973 ended, the three-day week went into effect. The miners were on strike. Heath called a general election asking, who runs Britain? He lost. Eighteen months later, he would be ousted as leader of the Conservative Party and replaced by Margaret Thatcher. When Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister four years later, her second order of domestic business, after weaning the British economy from central planning and causing another violent contraction in the process, was to destroy the enemy within, the miners. In America, the political turmoil surrounding Richard Nixon obscured for a time the effect of the oil embargo, but following his resignation, Nixon's replacement, Gerald Ford, is remembered primarily for his hapless win campaign, win standing for whip inflation now. It failed to resonate with the public, who voted in Jimmy Carter, now remembered best for an address to the nation about energy and oil, in which he said, all the legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with America. Carter lost to Ronald Reagan the following year. Reagan's second order of business, after weaning the American economy from federal regulation and causing another violent contraction in the process, was to take on public sector unions. In his speech of July 1979, Carter also said, We believed that our nation's resources were limitless until 1973, when we had to face a growing dependence on foreign oil. These wounds are still very deep. They have never been healed. A prophet is not without honor. 